Our scripture reading this morning is from Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 1 John, chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. <coughs> In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfect in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. morning. My name is Gray. I'm a pastor here, and if we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you uh, after the service. So glad to have you with us this morning. It's been a privilege these last few weeks to look more closely at the cross of Jesus Christ. You may know that there was a man who, uh, who lived, whose name was Jesus, about 2,000 years ago. Uh, you probably have heard that name before. You probably know that he taught some things. You probably know that his story is contained in the Bible and that he, when he was in his 30s, died on a cross, on a, a Roman instrument of torturous death. And that death has continued in significance throughout history since that moment. And billions of people have died in the, in the time since Jesus has died. And yet, we're still talking about it. There isn't a worship service that happens here at Ascension Church where we don't talk about the death of Christ on the cross. There isn't a Sunday where we don't come to the table and remember and celebrate what He has done for us on the cross. Why is the cross so significant? Why does it why does it uh, contain such beautiful complexity? That's what we've been looking at. And I told you last week that, just to pull the curtain back for a moment, what I'm actually doing is teaching you about uh, what is called the atonement. That's the word that we use to describe what happened on the cross. And throughout the years, there have been different views or different theories on what the atonement accomplished. So when we use that word, we mean Christ paying for sins. What happened? What was the transaction? Why was it such a significant death? And we've said that uh, the classical traditional views of Jesus' death are, in fact, very important. We talked about His death being substitutionary. That is, His atonement was in our place. We sing the song sometimes, uh, what is it called? Uh, Alleluia, what a Savior. And in that song it says this, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned 
he stood. That is substitutionary atonement. That is, in the place where I would normally have been condemned and rightfully condemned, Christ stood. That is my substitute. We looked last week at another view of the atonement, which is sometimes called Christus Victor. That's the Latin phrase that means Christ is the victor. And Christ is the victor over sin, over death, over evil, over every authority that would stand against him over the world. And we saw that in the cross of Christ, it was actually in the cross, not only was Christ our substitute, but Christ was the victor over everything that stood against him. Well, these final weeks, these next two weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be looking a little bit more intimately and more closely, not just about what the cross accomplished, big picture. We've been very big picture, talking about Christ crushing the devil last week and putting away sin, and we've been talking about how he was this guilt offering to the Lord who satisfied the wrath of God. That is, that is in the biggest possible sense These next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about a view of the atonement, which is historically called the moral influence view. And that is emphasizing that when Christ was crucified on the cross, it's not just that these cosmic things happened, but he actually intended for us to learn something on how to live. The moral influence. He did something that then we should copy when he went to the cross. And so today we're looking at the cross teaches us, demonstrates love. Next week we'll look at how it shows us how to live our lives every single day. But this is how we love. Now it's important to say that this moral influence that the cross is supposed to have is not in opposition to the things that we've already talked about. Sometimes historically we say, oh, let's put away this idea of a guilt offering and a blood sacrifice and, and the substitute and condemnation. Let's put away all those things and just look at what the example of Christ teaches us about love. We don't want to do that. We want to keep all the stuff that we've talked about in place. Christ was our substitute. He did satisfy the wrath of God. But if we're not careful, we will stay too cosmic and we will miss all of what the scriptures say the cross did for us individually. And what was happening in the cross was not just this huge outside thing that, that in the cosmic sphere had influence. It actually has something to do with my life right now. And it has something to do with my relationships right now and the love that God has for us, which is what we are going to look at today. Mostly in the book of John and 1 John. Let's pray and ask for God's help before we dive in. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word invites us into the mind and the heart of yourself, God. I pray as we approach it this morning, we would do so with humility and with a deep desire to know this God who's revealed himself to his people. And as we talk about your love, I pray that it would not be an abstraction, 
but that your love would grip us and compel us towards life in you, towards obedience, towards delight, towards a deeper relationship with you. So we ask for your help, Holy Spirit, to illumine our hearts to this truth. In the name of Jesus, amen. So uh, when I was growing up, we went through um, a couple of years as a family where we needed some outside help. My parents needed outside help for child care and house cleaning. They were doing various things in business and such. And so for a couple of years there, the four of us kids, I grew up in a family of four kids, we had a, a nanny or a housekeeper for a few hours after school and before uh, dinner most days of the week. And our, our first housekeeper slash nanny was uh, this lady named Charlene. And who we called Charlie. That's, how she, that's what the name she went by. And we loved Charlie. Uh, she was amazing. We really loved her because she loved us so much, us kids. She was in charge. Uh, she, she did what was necessary. She sometimes required things of us. She t- sometimes scolded us. She very much took that role seriously. But at the end of the day, we didn't care because we knew that she loved us, and we loved her. Well, life circumstances changed. I don't know if she got another job or if she moved away or something like that, but Charlie left uh, this job and went to another one, and we got another nanny named, I will name her, (laughs) Rachel. Never know who's going to listen to these things. So Rachel, I'll call her Rachel. And she did the work. We were generally kept safe, uh, as safe as yeah, young kids can be. Um, she cleaned, she cooked, she watched us, she did everything that she was supposed to, but when my parents talked to us about her, we would always say, Rachel is so mean. And I, as I was thinking about it this week, I can't even remember one thing that she did to us that was technically mean. Like I, I don't think she did anything mean to us. But here's what I think we were sensing from from Rachel. We were sensing she's there for the job. She's there out of obligation. She did it faithfully and no more. And so out of that sense of obligation, there there was obligation that was motivating it, but it wasn't love. And so we were contrasting that with what we had experienced before. And I think sometimes, if we're not careful, when we look at the cross of Christ and what God did in sending us His Son, we can start to believe that what God did was like a transaction of obligation. That God did what was necessary. That He begrudgingly sent His Son. That He was kind of forced by His own nature, by His own desire to love and to serve other people. So He held His nose and He said, okay, you know, I'm sending My Son because if you want a job done, I guess you're going to have to do it yourself. And it's kind of this, this huffy, like um, angry God who sent his son to do what no one else could do out of obligation and not out of love. And what we miss 
when we have that perspective, which is easy to fall into when we're talking about all the things that we've been talking about, the transaction, the courtroom of God, where, where rightfully we stand condemned and Christ stands in our place and God says, I accept your righteousness, I give him your sin, and we're kind of, we're kind of distant from this, which is a beautiful thing because we couldn't save ourselves. But if that's all that we talk about, we will miss the compassion that God has for us, His tenderness, His effusive love at the cross that was a demonstration of how much He cared for us. It isn't just that God had to, say, had to save us, it's that He wanted to. He wanted to save us. The cross of Christ is a demonstration of genuine love, not reluctant obligation. The cross of Christ is a demonstration of genuine love, not reluctant obligation. The Scriptures tell us God's love on our behalf, what He desired. And I want us to look at this love of God that God's intended to love. There's an intent in love. There's the action of love. And then there's the command of love. So God's intent first. We will look at God intends to love us. Look at me at 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse, that, so that bottom passage there in your bulletin. Verse 7, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, when I talk about God's intent in the cross is to demonstrate His love, what I'm saying is that the Scriptures tell us that love is God's both nature and His plan. It's His nature and it's His plan to love us. So first, it's His nature. We're told here in these two verses that God is both the source and the substance of love. He's the source and the substance. Look, verse 7 says he's the source. Um, For love is from God. That's where love comes from. It comes from God. That's the source. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He is also the substance of love. That is his nature, the source and the substance of love, love. And it's hard to wrap our heads around this because this is God's nature. It's His definition. It is amazing to think how much we use and talk about the word love and to say that the Scriptures tell us He is the source and the substance of that. We so commonly look at these verses about God's love that we're not shaken by it, but there's a great commentator, Emil Bruner, uh, who I don't agree with, uh, with a number of years ago, on everything. But he has uh, this amazing section on the love of God and this, these statements about God loving the world and laying down his, his life for the world. And he says this, that God is love is the most daring statement that's ever been made in the human language. The most daring statement that's ever been made in the human language. He further says this, that this idea in 1 John here that God is love 
is wholly new in the world. When John wrote that, there was something wholly new about this concept. If you look anywhere in other faiths, other other writings, we don't have this idea. We do have God acting lovingly, but we don't have this idea of God being identified with love, that it is His definition, His source. When we say that God is love, we're not saying that He is the greatest expression of love. We're not saying that He is loving. We are saying that He is love itself. And that's the holy new peace. There's some implications to that. Some important ones when we talk about God's character and His nature. Since God is love, that means that He gives definition to love. And so we don't extract love as a separate thing and then use it to judge the other activities of God. We don't say things like this, in other words. I can't believe that God would allow suffering since He is also loving. That's exactly backwards. In allowing suffering, God is love. It is part of His love identified with this suffering because otherwise to say that, to say anything different would be exactly backwards. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't mystery there. There isn't something we have to try to understand or live underneath that isn't super heavy. But we have to make sure that we're not speaking about God as if He is an abstraction that needs to size up to something called love. Or to say something like this, I can't believe that God who is love would prohibit X, Y, or Z, whatever it is that you want to fill in there. Other definitions of love. No. His prohibitions are by definition love, loving. Because He is love. He's not, in other words, just loving. He is love itself. Love is not an abstraction that resembles God. It is a characteristic that He defines. It's not something that's out there that He has to live into. It's something that He is that we try to understand. It's so important to see this in the right way. It is His nature. God is love. But it's also His plan. His plan. John 3.16, most famous verse in the Bible. I don't think I've ever preached on it. It says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This was God's plan. He loved the world in this way. When, the, when John says here, God so loved the world, he's not saying like so, like God so loves you so much He's actually saying, uh, God thus loved the world. This is the way that God loved the world. He sent His Son. But there is an effusive and unique and beautiful love. It's not found in the word so, like He loves you so much, but it's actually found in this word only. His only Son. His one and only. The word means unique. And it calls us to mind immediately to the Old Testament story of the sacrifice of Isaac, 
who Abraham was commanded to take his only or unique son, the son that he has great affection for and who has great significance in the line of the woman from Genesis, this promised son, emphasizing his uniqueness, emphasizing his importance, emphasizing his love, and then when thinking about taking his life, emphasizing the great loss. This is what God did for us. In Abraham's case, he stayed his hand. He told him not to sacrifice his son, but God did not hold back. He sent his son into the world to die on the cross. His unique son, his beautiful son. Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 says that this calls the cross an inexpressible gift, an undescribable gift. This is what God did for us. His intention was to love us. By His nature, He does love. By His plan, He planned love. This was His plan, to send the Son into the world. Verse 17 of John 3, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This was God's plan. It was a plan of salvation. Not a plan of condemnation. Doesn't mean that condemnation doesn't exist. And we have here this this dual stance of God, which is found throughout the pages of Scripture, where He desires something for us. He he desires us to believe and to not perish. And He certainly accomplishes that. We believe in something called divine sovereignty. What God does is He plans the the means and the ends. He has salvation. He is the God of salvation. He knows who are His, the Scriptures say. He knows His sheep. But at the same time, He also doesn't violate our cause and our return to Him, our belief in Him. And so the Scriptures tell us that we may believe or we may not believe. And God, in His love, wants us to believe and desires that we believe in Him. That's why He sent Jesus, so that the world might be saved through Him. But He does allow us to reject Him. You see this dual stance of God, even in Ezekiel chapter 18, says this, "'Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked?' declares the Lord God, and not, and not rather that He should turn from His way and live.'" You see that dual stance of God where He desires, He has a love for His people. This is God's intent. To present salvation to the world. He so loved the world. This is the way that He loved the world. He sent His Son. God's intent. Secondly, we need to see God's action. Because we all know that you can intend to love someone and not love them. Love is not just found in an intent. It's also found in action. We can say, I want to love my spouse, but if we never do anything loving, anything sacrificial, then it's questionable whether we love them. 
But God showed his love in this, not just in his intent, but in his action. 1 John 3.16, the middle passage there for us, who can remember this going forward, John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16, both talk about God giving up his son and laying down his life. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He laid down his life for us. The word there that John uses is to lay aside. It's like when you take off a coat, that's, that's the way it's used elsewhere in Scripture, to take off a coat and lay it aside. This is what he did. He took off his life and he laid it aside. It was his action of love. 1 John 4, jump down, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I keep saying this phrase that God sent His Son. That's what John 3.16 tells us. He sent His Son into the world. And sometimes we just think, that was God's action of love, is that He sent His Son into the world. That's the incarnation. When Christ took on flesh, and surely it was a demonstration of His love, but it wasn't just in His incarnation, it was in His propitiation. In other words, in His death. When He died, He died on our behalf. We've talked about this already. The word propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of God. God wanted to be just and the justifier. He wanted to satisfy, needed to satisfy the debt, but he didn't want to lose the sinner. And so he took the penalty on himself in his flesh. He laid down his life. This was his action of love. It wasn't just divine obligation. It's that God didn't want to lose his special creation, the one that he loved, that he formed from the dust. And so he sent his son, not just to be born into the world, but to die on the cross, not just out of a sense of his own divine decree, that's true from before the foundations of the world, and not just out of his own counsel, but out of his heart of love. He planned, sent, and laid down the life of his son in real time, for real people. He didn't just intend love. He acted in love. It's confusing sometimes to look at these words in Scripture and to see what all the words mean. We've used the word love here, and we've used the word world for the last couple of weeks. And I wanted to take a moment to tell us a little bit more about those words because the Bible can seem very confusing at first. Last week we said, for instance, that what Christ did when he died on the cross was overcome the world. This is the thing that's overcome the world, your faith in Jesus Christ. But here we see that God loves the world. Is this the same world that he's overcome? Jesus says, love your enemies. And then he also says, do not love the world or anything in the world. 
And so we're rightfully at first confused sometimes when we come to the Scriptures and we think, is the world a good thing worth saving? Is the world a bad thing worth destroying? Is love something that we're supposed to do? Or is love supposed to be something we're not supposed to do? And soon you have people blindly turning in these passages and saying, well, here, here's where the Bible contradicts itself. It says, uh, do not love the world, and then it says to lo- that God loves the world. And this is not a contradiction. This is the way that language works. What is the world and what is love? We saw last week the world sometimes is used positively and sometimes it's used negatively, just like we use words differently sometimes as well. Sometimes it's positive. It refers to creation, that God's good world that he, that he made. Sometimes it, it's defined as the thing that is set against God. The world is kind of all of these sinful things together that are set against him. And this is just the way that, the, that words work in any language. Let's take the word love, for instance. I wrote a little sample email for you. This is a, a fictional email. Uh, and let's just imagine that I'm sending this little four-sentence email to a friend. This is a really dumb email, but I'll share it with you anyway. Dear friend, greetings from Phoenix. It's 109 degrees here today. Gotta love that Phoenix heat. I didn't do much today. (laughs) This is so dumb. (laughs) Just went to the stores to to buy some prizes for the kids for when they finish their chores. They love Reese's peanut butter cups. Other than that, all I did was make a reservation for our anniversary dinner. Becca and I are celebrating 15 years this year of marriage. Amazing. Seems like I love her more every year. That's me. How are you, friend? Sincerely, Gray. Now, that's a silly email, but you understood it, right? There was nothing confusing in that email, even though I used the word love in three different senses, all in the same paragraph. Let's imagine that this email God help us if this is the case, is one of the surviving documents of our civilization. Let's say something happens, and they discover this email, and it's, it's their one of like five documents, their window into the 21st century America. And they have this surviving email. And their task is to try to understand, what did love mean in the 21st century to Americans? And they're confused. Because they see here three different uses. The first use that you understood immediately was sarcastic. Gotta love that Phoenix heat. Love, in that case, means the opposite of what it usually means, right? It means I don't love this Phoenix heat. Then I said, my kids love Reese's peanut butter cups, which is another way of saying they like them. They, they, they prefer that to other candies, And then I said that I love Becca, my wife, which is talking about the deep soul connection that you understood to mean was much deeper than any love that would have, hopefully, for any Reese's peanut butter cups, right? But all in the space of a few sentences, you can see how we use the word love. This is just the way that language works. It's our task to understand context, to understand what's going on here. And it's, it's, it's simpler than it seems. The scriptures do not contradict themselves when they talk about loving the wor- God loving the world and 
for us to not love the world because there is different kinds of love that's talked about in the Scripture. There are three kinds, generally speaking, of love in the Bible. This is like, this is not original to me. This is classic R.C. Sproul. If you know who that teacher is, he talks about this everywhere. And he says there are three different kinds of love that the Bible talks about. There's benevolence, there's beneficence, and there is complacent love. And the benevolence is the kind of love that God has for his world that is based in his kindness. God loves the world. He has a general stance of kindness, a general disposition of welcome to the world that he created. He is benevolent. Beneficent love, that means like the word beneficial, is the kind of love that is demonstrated in action and care when you serve someone. This is what we're told to do in the Scriptures. Love your neighbor. That's beneficent love. When we love someone, it means serve them. It means demonstrate love. And then the third kind of love is what's called complacent love, which is a different word than we, what, how we use the word complacent. When we say complacent, sometimes we mean checked out or not really caring about something. But actually, the word means a, uh, a kind of peaceful, relaxed love. And this is the love that God has for His Son. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this is the kind of special love that we are led into when we are in the Son. God loves His people with a special love that He doesn't hold for the rest of the world. And that love is in His Son. You can only have this kind of love if you are in the Beloved. If you are in Christ. Then you are loved by God in His special love. God intended love. God acted in love. Third, we have God's command for love. You notice that throughout John doesn't seem to be able to say anything about love, the love of God, without then turning it into a command for us to love others. It's beautiful. Verse 7 of chapter 4, 1 John, beautiful phrase. Beloved, let us love. See that? How beautiful that is? Beloved, let us love. It's even more beautiful in Greek. Just two words. Agapatoi, agapomen. Poetic, beautiful. Loved ones, love others. This is the whole game. Do you hear both the gospel essence and the gospel challenge? You are loved, so practice love. John's going to later say in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Think about the first and second great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are to be distinguished but never separated. We love because we are beloved. So the first thing you need to know is that you are 
God's beloved. When you are in Christ, the truth that God pronounces over His Son at His baptism, and the Trinity is there, and that pronouncement, you are my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased, is a pronouncement over your life when you are in the beloved. It's appropriate for you to pray in Jesus' name and to know that you are the beloved of God, that He has said these words over you. How do I know that God loves me, that what we've said here, that God so loved the world and all this language, how do I know that it applies to me? It's simple. You must be in the Son. You must be united to Christ. And when you are united to Christ, you are God's beloved. That's what John is speaking to the church, and he calls them beloved because they are loved by God. When, if you, it makes sense if you think about it, actually. God is love. We've already talked about. And so if you want to be in love, in the love of God, you must be in God. You must be found in Him. You must be united to Him, which is done by faith. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. We are united to the Son, and we are loved by God. You know, you can know that you are beloved, and then you share that love with others. That is the great command. He says, the two must go hand in hand. He states it negatively. And positively, negatively, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's the negative side, right? If you don't have love, you're not in God because He is love. Then he states it positively, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Positively, if you learn to love others, you will be perfected in the love of God. What does that mean? It means something like this. The fullness of God's love will be experienced in us when Christ-like love is practiced through us. Let me say that again. The fullness of God's love will be experienced in us when Christ's love is practiced through us. That's how it's perfected. It, when we serve others and love others, then we, we get that reminder, we get that picture, we get that comfort of knowing that whatever we have done for another person, 10x that we have experienced in God, He's already done that for us. This is the way that life in God works. Some of you have been through marriage counseling with me, pre-marriage counseling. Or been to one of my marriage classes, and you'll perhaps remember one of the phrases that I love to use during these times is this, loved people love best. You want to have a deeper marriage, a more experience of each other's love, know this, loved people love best. When you are loved, beloved, let us love one another. To know that you're beloved is part of of how you grow in love for others. If you are lacking love for another, let's say it's a friend or a spouse or anything, anyone else, 
the very first and most important thing you can do is to grow in knowing how beloved you are to God. The two are intimately connected. You must steep yourself in the knowledge of your own belovedness. And you have access to that belovedness, the knowledge that God loves you through the cross of Christ. This is how Christ, how God demonstrates love. In this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us and he sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. And so the cross teaches us how great, to what extent, the cosmic sacrifice of God demonstrates, shows us what love is. And when we are in Christ, then we can grow and begin to love others. Let's pray.